0: Amen. Good morning. All right. Let's see if we can get to Luke 14. Bibles, phone, tablet. Cheat off your neighbor. Try to find Luke 14. Where we're going to be today. Luke 14. In Luke 14, Jesus gets edgy, man. It's a tough sermon. I'm going to put, hang on. I I'm won't I'm be an edgy preacher, but it's tough. Luke 14 is cutting edge stuff. My daughter said, you preach today's sermon, I don't want you to be dull. Last time you preached, you were dull. I said, look, I had a 12 mark outline. That's not dull, that's rather pointy. <laughs> yeah, not bad. Thank you. you. Luke 14. No, it is what it is. Uh, I'm going to start with a little show and tell. I have pictures here of my family. If you're a visitor here, you don't know that I have a family. And as we preach through this text, you may wonder if I love my family, but I do. Here we are family picture It's me and my wife. Long time ago, you can tell because my hair is black then she's beautiful there's her on the right she does so much i love this woman she works with widows she's compassionate she takes care of your kids so you can be in here my wife i love it's my firstborn son many moons ago uh playing soccer there now he's a teenager got really cool hair my hair was never this good my high school mullet didn't even rival his hair I love my firstborn. There's my secondborn son when he was tiny. Loved to make messes. He's older now. I got to go to Washington, D.C. with him with the school. Had a great trip. I love hanging out with my son Micah. Uh, This is Anna, my daughter. I swear to you, she was born, came out of the womb with her hands on her hips, arms crossed. Wonderful, wonderful sassy smile like that right there. I love my daughter, Anna. My other son, Sammy, master of crazy hairdos that are awesome. I love it. They like mohawks and reverse mohawks. And I love to go fishing with him, play ball with him. Love my son, Samuel. It's my daughter, Shiloh. She looks just like me. She's from China. She's got a wig on there. Actually, looks more like my wife with that wig on. Uh, beautiful girl there. I love her to death. She's been nothing but a blessing. To my family, fine. I'm my last born, Asa. Don't say anything. Got a bit of a weight problem. This is actually not an altered, altered picture at all. That's just who he was, man. God bless him. He's a big dude. Up now he's slimmed down. World Cup. He's gonna reach for Argentina. U.S. won't be there, but I'll be with him, rooting. I love, love my family. And the reason I wanted to start with show and tell, is this. Today Jesus is going to ask you to dip, to bathe, to scrub, whatever you love the most in Luke 14. Because today, today Jesus calls you to hate your family. Jesus says, hate your family. Read it. Right there in verse 26. I'm not making it up. It's hard for me to say because I love my family, but Jesus says, hate your family. In fact, the verb hate rules over everything in this sentence. Verse 26, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, hate his own mama, hate his wife, hate his children, hate his brothers, his sisters, and yes, hate even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Words of Jesus. I mean, how can this be? Right? How can Jesus talk about hate? I first read this and I thought, man, maybe maybe the word is different in Greek and Aramaic. You know, the original Bible language, but no, it's not. It means extreme dislike. That's what hate means. What could be worse in today's social media driven culture than to be a hater, right? If Jesus were standing at a rally saying these words... There'd be a whole group protesting him right there, right? Hashtag Jesus hate speech. We wouldn't like it. because he says hate. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you've got to be a hater. Furthermore, it sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? If you know Jesus, if you read Jesus at all, talks a lot about love. He got on to the Pharisees for not loving their mother and father with the way that they give. He said, you should be giving some of that money to your mother and father. You've got to honor your mother and your father said, love your neighbor as yourself. Surely, your wife and children will be included in that, right? Earlier in this very book, in Luke 6, he said, love even your enemies. What in the world does he mean here when he's talking about hating what's most dear to us? Well, a couple things here. First, when you read this text, I want you to realize when Jesus says hate, it's a very real thing. He means real hate. It's not some allegory, right? We're not allowed to read Jesus and think, well, when he says hate, he means rainbows, unicorns. No, hate hate means hate here. It's a very real thing. And secondly, though it's real, it's not a loveless hate. It's not a loveless hate. Well, you say, what, what do you mean by that? Well, you got to understand that most always, when we use the word hate, it's a relative term, right? It's a term of comparison. So, for instance, if I woke up and I said truthfully to you, I hate the Tar Heels. I hate them. I hate them. I'm a Duke fan. I hate the Tar Heels. What would I mean by that? Does it mean that every day, every morning, I heap curses on their players? It's not what it means. Does it mean I hope that all their players and their coaches get a disease where their ears fall off? No, not what it means. It means I love Duke so much, and my affections for Duke here, affections for Tar Heels here, it's a relative. Yeah, even though she's with me, it's a relative term. That's why Jesus, when he's saying the same message, except instead of using hate, he uses love in another verse, over in Matthew ten thirty seven. Jesus says, "Whoever loves father, or mother." More than me, hear the comparison talk, is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, says Jesus. So I made some pictures because I think some of us are visual learners. This isn't hard stuff, not profound. So I got some expert drawings here. My wife is laughing for some reason. I got these off the internet Look kind of like a soft serve ice cream, but it's not soft serve ice cream. It's supposed to be a throne, the chair on top, with ascending stairs of your heart, okay? If you can stay with me here, think about. The throne of your heart. What rules inside of your heart. All right, go to the next scribble. Okay, this is what it should be. This is what Jesus is saying. If you can see it, I know it's blurry and small. But Jesus should be at the top on the throne. There's only room for one thing, one person at the top, and it's Jesus. And next in your affections is your spouse. Next is kids. Maybe next is a hobby reading Char grills on there at the bottom. It's at the bottom, but char grills in my heart. That is the proper alignment. What happens though? Jesus knows our tendencies is to flip it. Right? You put your children up on the throne. Maybe your spouse is next. And Jesus, you give him third place. Right? Third slot. That's not bad. It's not that far down a char Not bad. But here's what. Here's my point. When Jesus is talking about hate, he's talking about a measurement. A gap between the amount of affections you have for him and the amount of affections you have for anything else right? it's a distance measurement here when he's talking about hate he's talking about there should be a large distance between your desires your affections for anything anyone else and your affections through God through your Savior Jesus Christ enough of the drawings thanks bro what does this mean well i've told this story before back in 2008 our our uh, church decided to send a team to afghanistan there was a war on in 2008 in afghanistan but we had some missionaries who wanted to work there because there's a lot of people who haven't heard about jesus there so we sent a short-term trip there and the war was on exciting trip that wasn't dull That was a pointy trip. And uh, we got to meet the missionaries there, work with them, check out everything. We ended up going there long term, but we had a short term trip there. And I remember being there, riding around with Arm guard in a Humvee. And we got stopped by the Afghan army, not the Taliban, praise God, but the, the good guys in Kabul. And uh, they, the way they do their mechanized infantry there is they put a 60 cal on the back of a Toyota truck, right? And they swing it and they go around. So this guy was on the back of a Toyota truck. He had his 60 cal pointing this way. He was talking to our driver. I was in the Humvee. He was standing up there and he had his AK-47 pointed casually loaded in my face because he was talking and I was in the back seat. And I'm looking down the barrel of this AK-47. I'm thinking, maybe I shouldn't have come on this trip. In fact, I had somebody in church come up to me concerned. And they said, why are you doing this? Don't you love your family? If you get hurt, you got 62 kids and Julie's a widow. Don't you love your family? And that's part of what Jesus is saying. Your affections will look so skewed when you do crazy things for Jesus that it will look sometimes like you hate your family and other things. And notice this in the text here. When Jesus is talking about your heart, notice what he does. Because he doesn't pick things, and in this case, people. He's talking about people. He doesn't pick people who you might be prone to hate anyway. Right? There are some people I'm prone to hate. Amen? Racist? I kind of want to hate some racists, right? Sex traffickers? I could get up the strength to hate some sex traffickers. The people in this city that propagate systems that allow systemic poverty go on and on and on. I could have some hate for those people, but note this in the text. Jesus does not pick those people as most dangerous to your soul, all right? Maybe they're dangerous to society, but when it comes down to you and heaven and God, he's going to pick the people most closely connected to you and the things most closely connected to you and deem them incredibly destructive to your spiritual life. Why is that? It's always intimate allies that can throw the best coups, right? And Jesus knows that. That's why we all must today, from this text, learn how to be a bunch of haters. All right? That's what Jesus is saying. In some sense, you have got to hate some things in order to follow me. If that makes you uncomfortable, I think that's the effect that Christ is attending here, Right? If you think, oh, you've got to be wrong. I don't want to talk about hate. I don't want to think about hate. That's exactly why Jesus phrases it this way. So here's what we're going to look at from Luke 14. Three things. Three intimate allies that Jesus says are most likely to throw a coup for your heart, a coup for your soul. Three things we have to watch out for. So we must hate them. First, Jesus says, hate your family. Maybe the only sermon all year that you hear the pastor say this, hate your family. Now he does clarify this a little bit later on, like Jesus is turned uh, prone to do in verse 28. He clarifies it. When I was reading this, I thought, oh, he's going to clarify what he means by hate, but he doesn't really clarify hate. You know why? It's because he knows that you are familiar with that rogue emotion of hate already. He doesn't have to explain what hate is. But he does explain about counting the cost if you're going to claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Look in verse 28. He gives a story to explain himself. So which of you, desiring to build a tower, so pretend you're a builder here, right? What if you desire to build a tower or a home or a playhouse or a treehouse? Wouldn't you first sit down and count the cost? Whether you have enough to complete it, otherwise... When he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not even able to finish. You're nothing but a laughingstock if you don't count the cost of following Christ as king. And notice the language I'm using here. When I say Christ is to be king in your realm, it doesn't mean that your family is to be peasants. Okay? Okay? Not what he's saying back later the apostle paul will come along and he'll say man love your wife husband love your wife like christ loved the church that's a good intimate greatest possible love right there so jesus isn't against families or loving your families what he's saying is they make good princes in the realm of your heart poor kings okay good princes terrible kings And no great king ever appreciated a throne grab from a prince. And that's what Jesus is saying. You've got to watch out. So here's the cost. The cost is relegating your family from number one spot in your existence down to number two. That's the cost you must count if you're going to follow Jesus. What's nice about this is he's not messing around, right? As one author said, there's no fine print with Jesus. You're not buying a cell contract here. You're crowning the king. And if you're a disciple of family, you cannot be a disciple of Christ. Only one can be preeminent. Jesus says, you've got to watch out for your family because they will sneak in there. And as always, Jesus is being counterculture to everything you're going to hear in our society, right? Take Hollywood. Most Hollywood movies have the king of family. You might think, oh, Hollywood's so secular. They hate families. Uh, Not really many of them elevate families. I sat down and watched Spider-Man with my kids, the latest Spider-Man movie. Uh, That's not a bad movie. But the villain there is this guy named Vulture Man. I'm sure that's his name. And uh, and at one point in the movie, he's talking to Peter Parker in a scene where he's like, I know I got you, Peter. And Peter's like, oh, I know he's got me. And he starts telling about what motivates him. And guess what he says? He says in in this film, and it's supposed to make perfect sense. We're supposed to relate to Vulture Man in this moment, right? And he says, nothing means more to me, Peter, than what? My daughter, right? My daughter is the greatest thing. And we're supposed to feel like, oh, yeah. I can relate to this guy. He's he's just a troubled soul. Because in Hollywood, family is always first. The lone person on the throne will be your family. Well, what are some ways that we can be disciples of family? There's a lot of ways that we can slip off track. And we're just going to talk about one really quickly. Thing to watch out for. How do we become disciples of family instead of disciples of Christ? does that work well one way it works is that as parents we can make the personal achievements of our children the essence of our fulfillment okay let me tell you what i mean by that here's how kids work i've had a couple when they get to the age three four five when they're no longer playing and satisfied with tupperware in your kitchen they start to have interest of their own music arts Sports, take sports, and you, you take little Johnny to the basketball gym, and you've taught him how to dribble just a little bit, and that's a lot a bit more than the other kids know, and you put him out there, and he's an all-star, man. He's a five-year-old all-star, and you think to yourself, oh, kid's got potential. I owe it to him as a parent to make sure he realizes that. And that's when hooks start to get into your heart. Because what it is we often look for is not just their personal success, but we look to their personal achievements as something that will give us fulfillment, right? If they're happy, then I've succeeded and I can be fulfilled. Except what almost always happens. Johnny grows up, competition gets harder and harder and harder. His sports career tends to fizzle out by the time he gets to college. He's walked away from God. Heard a story from a preacher, Matt Chandler. He said he worked in college ministry for uh, 10 years. And it's a big, big church. Lots of people he worked with. He said he got many, many calls and emails and texts from fathers who would say, Yo, Matt, I don't understand it. My son, he's 20 years old now. He's 21 years old now. And he's walked away from the church. Wants nothing to do with it. And Pastor Chandler said, you know, I could could ask a couple questions and figure out what's going on here. God was never God for this child. Sports was God, right? If not sports, grades. If not grades, music. If not music, tech savvy. If not tech savvy, gaming. There's a replacement of God that goes into this. All the while, we are blinded as parents into thinking, if my child... Is a successful child, this will give me fulfillment, right? Remember, your children's success, not a bad prince, terrible king of your heart. Jesus said you have to look out for this, but the good news is Jesus will satisfy you, right? If you've read through Luke or if you were here last week, remember what the text was on last week? Text last week, Jesus is telling a story about a banquet and a feast and how a man invited people to the feast, but they always had excuses. I can't come. I, I can't come. I can't. I can't come. Jesus is using the feast metaphor to describe what it's like to have intimacy with him. When Jesus wants to talk about being close to you, he all the time talks about feasts. Think about the Lord's Supper. Gladman did a fantastic job. That's a pastor waiting to hatch. Great job, Gladman. Think about what Jesus said after the Lord's Supper. Remember what he said? He said, I'm not drinking this wine again until the kingdom of God comes. When I'm going to drink it again in the kingdom of God, I'm going to drink it with you. I'm going to feast with you, and I'm going to be the main course. Jesus knows that only he can satisfy us on the basis of his sacrificial atonement. He has fulfilled the pledge that God made, the new covenant. This new covenant ensures that Christ will come near to you. God's spirit will come inside of you because he's forgiven you. And that Jesus inside of us by his spirit is the only true satisfaction that we can ever have. And he knows if family's first and ultimate and supreme, you'll never truly experience what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Revelation 19 has a scene of a great feast, the final feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there's an old hymn that describes this. It was harmonized by Bach. Maybe you've heard it before. But it has these words. The hymn says this, At the Lamb's high feast we sing praise to our victorious King who hath washed us in the tide flowing from his pierced side. Praise we Him who love divine, gives His sacred blood for wine, gives His body for the feast. Christ the victim, Christ the feast. Where the Paschal blood is poured, death's dark angels sheaths the sword. Israel's hosts triumphant go through the way that drowns the foe. Praise we him whose blood was shed. Paschal victim, Paschal bread. With sincerity and love we eat manna from above. The idea is that only Jesus is sufficient to satisfy you. I remember going on my honeymoon. We went to Jamaica and they had one of these feasts, man, like a luau. If you ever do all-inclusive, that's the best part. The food never runs out. I remember going, eating supper, then later getting out there at like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. It's my honeymoon. I was up 1 a.m., 2 a.m. And I go, and there's a grill open 24-7. I was always satisfied. Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm the feast. Come to me. Put everything else second. And in that sense, we must hate our family. Great princes, terrible kings. Secondly, Jesus says, you must hate your body. You must hate your body. Look at the end of 26, because there's a subtle shift. Jesus goes from talking about your feelings for other people to your feelings about yourself. And he says, yes, yes. Even hate your own life. If a man doesn't hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I'm using body instead of life because of verse 27. Jesus now gives us a very physical torture type metaphor to teach us what he's saying. Verse 27, he says, whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple Cross-bearing is code for physical suffering, physical pain. Your body not doing what you would love for your body to do. Of course, the cross of Christ is much more than that. But he's throwing out the cross metaphor, so we will know there might be some safety risk in following Jesus and some health risk in following Jesus. Again, he offers another story to kind of explain himself. Look in verse 31. He says, what king who goes out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? 32. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now he's switching from building metaphor to battle metaphor. And here's the point. You would be a horrible military leader if you had 10,000 soldiers And you saw 20,000 coming and you did not count the cost because there's lives to be lost. And you better know that if you're going to follow Jesus, there's lives to be lost and it could be yours. And that's his point. Just as before, you cannot serve King Jesus and King safety. Or King Jesus and King healthy. You have to pick one. And Jesus warned it had better be him on the throne of your heart. Following Christ might leave you to some unsafe places and some unhealthy places. Well, what are some ways we could be, without knowing it, actually disciples of health and safety instead of disciples of Jesus? Well, of course, all over the world today, it's very much unsafe. Choice to follow Jesus in a Muslim country, some countries in Africa in Asia when you pick Jesus you're immediately sailing through some uncharted territory that are very dangerous and that might be you. God might call you there or God might bring those circumstances here in your lifetime. So it could be that that's what it means for following Jesus it's not safe but for most of us now We're not dealing with that type of physical persecution. So what might this mean for us to follow safety or healthy instead of following Jesus? Well, a lot of us can actually make idols of our own bodies, right? Sounds weird to think about it. I don't worship my body. You know the worshipful prayer that Jesus said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day this daily bread. Sounds silly to even think you would even worship your own body. What would that even look like? Be praying to your body, my body, your health is my heaven. Hallowed be my frame. Right? I'll give you today only flaxseed bread. I don't know. I don't know what it would look like to pray to your body. But more seriously, many of us do have. Some real body issues, and it has to do with the idea of our body image, right? revolve, the challenge for us here in America revolves around body image. Some of us devote ourselves to rigid diet and exercise regimes that are good princes, but really, really bad kings. Why do we do it? Well, think about it. If you have an idol of approval of others, a healthy body gains people's approval in our culture. And that will allow the shift to happen between eating right, which is a good goal, to become an ultimate goal, and king of your heart. You like what you see in the mirror? I'm going to keep pressing towards that above all things. How can you figure this out? Well, you have to ask some hard questions of yourself because it's hard to see what's ultimate in your life. It's hard to see what's ruling in your heart. You might ask a question. What's the trendy phrase now for your diet, right? What's trendy now is you're supposed to eat healthy and delicious, right? Those two words, key, key words, eat healthy and delicious. Well, here's the question. Can you sustain the monetary cost of eating healthy and delicious and give causes for justice and mercy? Because they're both going to cost you some money, right? I can't answer that question. There's no law, right? Can you afford your gym membership and give also to planting churches? Especially in places where the gospel is not. I can't answer that. I'm not trying to answer it. I'm not laying down a rule, but I think Jesus would have you say, Jesus, you are more valuable than a fit body even though fit bodies are good there's probably an even more dire situation that most of us encounter revolving around our body image because for most of you the mirror is not an affirming friend it's an assassin right you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see blogger named Kendra Dahl from the Gospel Taboo blog shared her story. I'm so thankful to hear her talk so openly. She said she was a little heavy when she was a child. And then she writes this. She writes, at age 12, I finally lost some weight. And I got the tension that I craved. And so I determined to do everything I could to keep that attention. And the years that followed were marked by cycles of diets, exercise plans, forced vomit, but it was never enough. I looked in the mirror and I felt only shame and disgust. And then having a baby well before my peers exacerbated the problem because I compared their young unmarked bodies to my stretched and worn body. She writes, we want to please others. We want people to think we're beautiful, sexy, confident, strong because we fear their judgment. But the love of people is fickle, always is. Achieving some ideal body type or the approval of others will never give us the satisfaction that we crave. It'll never be enough. It's only in trusting we are accepted as God's beloved children that we will find the freedom to actually peel back those layers and face what lies beneath the surface. God's love for us is unchanging. Because it's based on him, not on us. By definition, body image refers to how we see ourselves. We want to look in the mirror and like what we see. But Christ's blood trumps every accusation, whether from the outside or from within. When our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Romans 8.1 said, there's there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus this is the reality of the gospel because the blood of Christ we're okay even in our current physical state. That's the hope that the gospel gave Kendra as she was dealing with these horrible body image problems. She realized she had to let go. Had to let go of this as being the ruling factor in her life. Body care, exercise, is appropriate the nice prince, the poor, terrible king. Only Christ can be king. We must hate our bodies. Final point. Hate your family. Hate your body. Finally here Jesus says, hate your possessions. Hate your stuff, says Jesus. Hate your stuff. I'm a little relieved he finally got off people, right? <laughs> now he's talking material things. Whew. Hate your possessions. Why? Because they can destroy you. Look at what he says to explain himself in verse 34. Starts talking about salt. He says, you know, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Answer is it can't. It's now of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It's thrown away He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Why is he talking about salt? Because it was used a certain way in the first century. Primarily, it was used to cause a chemical reaction to help to serve as an agent for burning their fires. They cooked by fire, they heated their home by fire, and they used manure. That's why he mentions manure pile here. They would dry it out, and then it would serve as fuel for their fires, and they put salt on it and that would help it react and burn, but once it lost its saltiness, it would no longer have that effect. It wasn't even good for secondary use of fertilizer. That's why he mentions the soil here. If it loses its saltiness, it is good for nothing. And the text says it will be discarded. Get the picture. Jesus is saying bad salt is thrown away. Your possessions, are so dangerous because they will lull you into a lackluster, ineffective trance, taking you away from the mission of Christ. Your stuff hypnotizes your heart and you're no longer able to see the glory of Jesus because you're in a fog. Bad salt will be thrown away. Look at verse 33. So, therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce what? Not renounce all that he has. Cannot be my disciple. It's handy if Jesus he throws everything in the bag, right? And says, you got to renounce all your stuff. If you don't do that, you're not my disciple. Brings up the question, how do we get to a point but we're so reliant upon our things. It's a little different in our culture. Today, though, we have a lot of cultural influences. I read a book called uh, You Are What You Love by an author named James Smith. And he beautifully used the analogy of a shopping mall. A picture, picture a shopping mall. There are people shopping. And he uses this illustration to show how we find our identity in the things that we purchase and how culture speaks to us about who we should be in light of all of our stuff. He makes two or three points here. He says, first, here's what the shopping mall tells you, or Amazon Prime, or wherever you shop. Maybe malls are going out of style now and you go somewhere else, but this is his point. He says, this is what our culture is telling you about your possessions. He says, first off, they give you the lie that says, I shop, therefore I am. I shop, therefore I am. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that because of our tendencies, we tend to have a flawed view of material things. Our our culture is going to browbeat us with this idea, stuff will give you the good life. Think about a cell phone commercial. I saw one the other day. It's It's a high school kid. He gets the latest iPhone and everything changes. He's popular. People want to text with him, Instagram him. He's now faster. Things are faster for him. He can do a lot of cool stuff. And the idea is, wow, man, he's got that high-powered phone. Life's looking pretty good for him, right? Or take a sitcom. You ever seen the old sitcoms with this typical sitcom family? You've got a dad. He's got kids that are a little quirky and zany, but in the end, they're all right. Beautiful wife. Go out on his porch. What's the dad have? Huge chrome barbecue, right? Sets it up. He could put half a hog on there. And he opens it, and he's grilling. I saw that sitcom, and I was like, man, he's got a pretty good life. Maybe I need me one of those grills. That's the message that's being sent. I watched a college football game yesterday on my TV, and they were advertising a video game. And it was kind of a cool video game, uh, because I like that kind of stuff. But it was one of those video games where you're the general, and you are in charge of a bunch of soldiers, and you take over the world, whatever. I thought it was interesting. You might not. But you know, I played some games, and what was happening... As these troops on the video graphic were taking over this castle, all of a sudden they showed who was playing the game. And in walks this beautiful supermodel girl. (laughs) Now, I've played some games, and supermodels don't often show up at video game parties, right? But at this one, she did. And she stood there by the dude who was playing the game, and you're supposed to get the message, hey, if I buy this game, maybe I'll have a beautiful girl come up to me. The message that over and over is sent to our culture. It sounds laughable, and yet we believe it with our stuff. Maybe more and better stuff can better define my identity. Hmm? Maybe I can be something. I have more and better stuff. Smith has another point. He says, here's another lie we believe. I shop. I shop along with others. I shop with others. Picture the image. And he does this really well. He's saying that our stuff makes us compete with people instead of seek community with them. And he, he t- shared the image of going to the mall with his teenage daughters. And you've probably seen this. If you're a parent of a teen, you know that now you take your kids to the mall and you stand back a little bit and let the group of them do their thing. And he said, I've seen countless times when my daughter and all of her friends were just hanging out at the mall and then some girl would come in late and what would happen? They would say, oh, good to see you. There would be hugs all around. And then in a flash, there would be this. Just the oat up-down by all the girls to whoever walked up. What were they doing? They were measuring if her stuff, her getup, her clothes fit the current standard of acceptableness, right? He said, I've seen it time and time again. Why do they do that? Why do we do that? Because success or winning with our stuff comes when people actually fade into their possessions and you actually morph into an object worth looking at, right? Our culture says you're actually fading, disappearing into what you own until you become a lovely object that someone would want to look at. That's the lie we believe. Thirdly, he says you can phrase it like this, I shop and shop and shop, therefore I am. What's the idea there? The idea that consumption becomes your redemption. The lie that many of us believe. Consumption is actually going to lead to your redemption. Amazon Prime, eBay, they're all a sanctum and a respite from the doldrums of our normal life. We feel like we need to be rescued and we buy the lie that consumption will be our redemption. The very activity of shopping and gaining more stuff is idealized as a quasi-salvation in our society. This is why you can't be a disciple of stuff and still be a disciple of Jesus. Because Jesus says, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is really tricky, right? Because he doesn't tell you exactly what to give up. For some people, it's different things because we can be possessed by our possessions in different ways. But know this, Jesus is talking about possessions here, giving up all that you have, being willing to renounce all you have, but he's really after your heart, talking about your possessions because they're connected like a puppet, little strings to your heart. For instance, he doesn't say, hey, here's how you solve this problem, guys. Give 5 to 10 percent of your monthly income to the church. Just pay the church tariff. But you can keep your heart. And your heart can still be weighed down like an anchor to the bottom of the ocean by your technology, your favorite hobby, your upgraded home with bamboo floors. All of this can be your salvation if you don't give Christ your heart. He truly knows what we're like on the inside how do we fight against this you've got to find whatever it is your heart's attached to in your home in your net worth maybe it's your retirement plan i don't know he doesn't say something's got a hold of your heart you got to be willing to renounce it for the rich young ruler it meant giving it away someone else in the scripture it meant giving half his stuff away Jesus is not laying down law here but he is doing heart surgery. I can tell you a little bit of my own story. And my own story isn't even one that I would tell you to copy. Just an example of my journey. It's not some nugget of wisdom necessarily. It's just how God changed me. Been working here at this church downtown somewhere for the past 12 years. For 10 years I lived downtown. Which means as I come to work, as I just do my normal thing, I come in contact with lots of folks who want stuff. They beg, right? You've been downtown long enough, you've been approaching, somebody's begging for some stuff. It's really common down here. And one thing I do is I examine what is my heart attached to? And one thing I struggle with, my heart gets attached to cash, right? I like, I like money. Because from cash flows all other possessions, right? So I think, ah, I need more. I need more cash. So Somebody often walks up to me says, hey, man. And the story might be this or that or this or that. Always finishes with, could I have five bucks? Could I have 10 bucks? Sometimes I don't, but sometimes I do. Sometimes I give away cash to people. Now, I know. I know I've read the book. Read the book, When Helping Hurts. I know on page 107, it says this isn't a good policy. I get that. I know I'm doing nothing in that moment to help this fellow's long-term wealth accumulation, right? I'm not fighting against the systemic problems in our society that keep poor people down, but that's not the point in this moment, and that's not the point of this text. We can have a lot of other sermons about strategic giving. I do that. I want you to know I have strategic giving that most of my giving goes for. But I do have money that I carry around because I want to buy something with it. <laughs> and I want it to be available for someone just to take it away. Sometimes it's stuff. Are you cold? Here, have my coat. Take my coat. I was walking home from work one day in the wintertime. Guy stopped and said, hey man, I got to get me some shoes for work. I'm doing construction. Can you give me 30 bucks? I look down, and what am I wearing? Shoes. They're boots, and you could use these for construction. And so I'm like, I have some boots. They fit you? Yeah, man, that's just my size. So I walk home with just my wet socks that day, and I'm thinking, oh, I miss my boots. That was stupid. I miss my boots. But in that moment, I also thought, I gave something up. This was an effort To show Christ is king in my heart. Guy came back two months later. Asked for something. Had my boots on. (laughs) He didn't remember me. I gave him those boots. Asked him for something different. I'm not saying I'm solving his problems. I am saying I'm willing to give up some things that I know shipwreck my heart. How do you do this? Pastor Charles Spurgeon said, you've got to focus on the glories of Jesus and how brightly he shines if you're going to be willing to walk away from the people and the things of this world. And that's what I want to end on here. Just land the plane into Jesus Airport for a minute. I want to give you a quote. It's a long quote, but you can hear it. You can listen. Ask the musicians to come on up here. As I read the quote, I want you to think of Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, as compared relatively to others, where do your affections lie? No one can answer this because no one can see your heart. But I want you to reflect. And after this, we'll pray. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, we must think on the glory of our Lord's enthronement and think on mightily his second coming. Because now he sits at the right hand of God Jesus, that once was hung upon the tree of shame, now sits on the throne of universal dominion. Instead of the nail, behold, the scepter of all the worlds in his most blessed hand. All things are put under Jesus' feet. He, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, is now crowned with glory and honor, and this is the gospel to us. For thus it is plain that he has conquered all of our enemies. And he has all power in heaven and in earth on our behalf. His acceptance with God is the acceptance of all whom he loves. And he loves all who trust him. His sitting in glory is a pledge that the whole of all the redeemed by blood shall sit there in due time. His second coming for which we daily look is our divinest hope. For if before we fall asleep, the Lord should descend upon heaven with a shout, with the trump of an archangel and the voice of God, and then shall the righteous shine forth at the Son and the kingdom of their father. Then will our weary days be ended. The strife of tongues, the struggle against sin, the stratagems of error, all will be finished. And truth and holiness shall reign supreme in Jesus Oh, my brothers, he said, if I could just break loose from the impediments of my mouth and tongue and speak my heart without these organs, then I would make you rejoice in the glory of my divine master. Upon his throne he sits today, and in his glorious appearing at the appointed hour, he will come, and if we could just see him as John saw him in Patmos, we might swoon at his feet. But it wouldn't be with the rapture of hope. Alone. It would be with appreciation, not with the chill of despair. Only Jesus Christ is worthy to sit on the throne. Let's consider him together. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts. You know what we move up the stairs and put on the throne daily. That's why you say you got to hate those things as compared to your love for Jesus Christ. I pray right now that by your spirit in this moment, as we bow our heads, God, you would give us a revealing. One thing that we treasure too much. One person that we've shaped into a little bitty God. Help us, God. Don't leave us there. By a marvelous work of your Spirit, show us a much bigger Jesus, a God who overshadows all these things, a God who looks down on these calves that we have built to worship and you overshadow it with your grace and you say, in Jesus, I have provided so much more. Only will you be satisfied in Christ if you rid yourself of all these encumbrances to faith and hope and love. Help us, God, in these moments. Help us this week to follow Christ and Christ alone. Lord, it is in His name that we pray. Amen.